Well, Matthew chapter 2 is very, very popular. Many people know it, and there's a lot of different ways that it can be taught, and there's a lot of different ways that you can focus on in those scriptures. I would say the most popular one is looking at it from prophecy. It has more Old Testament references than any other chapter in the book of Matthew, Micah 5.2, Hosea 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 31.15, a reference to the prophets that he shall be called a Nazarene. And there's many good Bible studies about Matthew chapter 2 focusing on that, those scriptures themselves. Uh, another very popular way to read and to teach Matthew chapter 2 is focusing on the parallels between Jesus' life, his early life, and that in Moses of Israel and Israel coming out of Egypt and out of captivity. There's a lot of parallels there. Uh, but today we're going to look at this chapter differently. We're going to focus on something else. And to do that, we're going to time travel like we like to do here. We're going to go back 500 years to 605, 539 B.C. when a young man named Daniel was taken into captivity and brought into Babylon, which would later become Persia, and he was used by God in a mighty way, and the Lord spoke to him. And specifically, he spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar I, who was, we could say, the ruler of the whole world at that time. He had so much influence and so much wealth, and the nation of Babylon had become so big. But Nebuchadnezzar made himself out to be a god. He thought he was in charge of everything. In fact, he made an idol that was huge and made everyone in the country worship it. But Daniel and his friends, they would not bow the knee and the Lord used them. Well, later in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he would spend seven years in insanity. He would crawl on the ground and eat grass like a cow. But when he came out of that insanity and the Lord says he came to himself, the Lord brought back that sanity, back his mental faculties to himself. I personally believe, and what do we know about my opinions? If they're outside of the scripture, they don't count for nothing. Well, let's just give me some rope here. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer if you look at his statements after he comes back to his sound mind. And Daniel had influence over Babylon that would last, I think, for generations. Again, we're, we're in the realm of my opinion now, but Daniel, his protégés, his students, the prophecies that were taught at that time, I believe they're passed down from generation to generation, from mentor to student and student to mentor. And now as we come to Matthew chapter 2, 500 years later, we're going to see these wise men come from the east. And I believe it's come, it could trace itself all the way back to Daniel's captivity for them looking for this king, this king of Israel, this king of the Jews that is being born now in Israel. Let's begin with a word of prayer. And then we're going to, we're going to read a large portion of text, verses 1 through 12. And we'll double back. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And we pray that you would help us to seek you out, to find you, to search you out in the scriptures. We pray that you would write these scriptures on the tablets of our heart, that you would have us understand you and, and know you as you wish to be known. We pray that we would leave this place growing closer to you and with a fresh hunger and desire to seek you out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verses 1 through 12 together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east 
and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own, for their own country another way. I, we see here in Matthew that it's not as interested in this gospel in many of the details, say, for example, that are in Luke. You know, we don't hear about the angels singing. We don't see about the shepherds. We don't see about the, the inn being full or being placed in a manger. Matthew is not interested in that. It has a different perspective, a different focus. Remember, Matthew, if you remember from last week, is written with a focus on Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy, the king of the Jews. There's only a few characters in this chapter. We have the Lord, of course, but it's the wise men that we focus on, Herod, the king, and then the chief priests and the scribes. Those are the three main characters, aside from the Lord, that we focus on in this chapter, which is very interesting that the primary focus in Matthew 2 is on Gentiles. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. Like, Wouldn't you think they would all focus on the nation of Israel? Now, our other character, King Herod, fascinating. Herod is only half Jewish. He's, the other half is Idumean. We know them as Moabites. He's half Moabite. And he's appointed king in 40 BC by the Roman Senate. The Jews do not like him because he's a, a, a puppet king. The Romans are using him as a puppet. A, a fun fact that I just discovered studying for this chapter is that Herod was 33 years old when he was inaugurated as king. We know the Lord was 33 when he gave his life for us. I just thought that was too interesting not to share. I had to give you guys that one. Now, we know the wise men, they come following this star from the east. It's an over 300-day journey by camel and foot. And so this journey takes a very, very long time. But why are they following a star? Why use a star? We see in this chapter, in the first 12 verses, they, they're already spoken to by dreams. The Lord can speak to them. Why didn't the Lord just give them a dream to follow? Why wasn't it just a map in a text? Why wasn't it a prophecy? The Lord uses this unique celestial experience. Now, what is it? I'll give you a couple of theories. The first one is something called retrograde motion, that it wasn't actually stars, it was planets, that they were in alignment. I find this very fascinating. It is plausible. Um, there's some great documentaries about it, but I'm going to save you all from those scientific details. 
Another is that there was a supernova. A star exploded or one was formed at that time. That's another plausible, another plausible explanation. And the third one, which is my personal favorite, is that it's just supernatural. The Lord did a miracle in the sky and showed us. I don't understand what it is about human nature that we want to have natural explanations to miraculous phenomenon in one sense, but then we don't ask for natural explanations for how a virgin gave birth to the, for the Messiah. Like, we don't try and do it there. Why are we doing it with these other areas? So if you're asking me my own opinion, and we, again, I, I've inoculated you, right, right? We know the opinions, they don't mean much. I believe most likely it's just a miracle. The Lord just supernaturally did this. I, I would say retrograde motion, if you follow those documentaries, is second most likely in my opinion. Uh, very scientific, very interesting. I don't think it's a supernova or a creation of a star because we see that it lasts for a long time and that it comes and goes from the scripture. I find that fascinating, but it's also, it's also possible. But where, again, why? Why the star? Well, we're going to go back to a very great, righteous, well-known prophet. I am being so sarcastic. Because it comes from Balaam. You guys remember Balaam? You remember his donkey? That guy was terrible. He was a horrible prophet. He was against the nation of Israel. But God used him in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, to share this prophecy with us. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Fascinating. Fascinating. Again, this gospel is written specifically to a Jewish audience. We're already seeing multiple biblical references, and yet it is only the Gentiles in this chapter that are seeking him out. Herod's not seeking him out. Herod could care less. It's about power and politics and getting rich and being in control. That's all Herod cares about. The scribes, the chief priests, what are they doing? Well, they're in Herod's court. They're not looking for him. It is the wise men from the east that are forsaking everything to follow him. The gospel of Matthew is sharing with the world that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the whole world. It has always been his plan to reconcile all nations to himself, Jew and Gentile alike. The Holy Spirit would speak through Paul as he's writing to Jews in Rome in chapter 9, quoting Old Testament scripture that this is all a fulfillment. In fact, in Romans 9.22, it says, What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In verse 25 he quotes Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. He's talking about us now. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. Now in verse 29, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Verse 30, most important. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. If you kind of got lost in his context there, he's saying there's vessels of honor and dishonor, the chosen people of Israel and the Gentiles who are not even seeking him out. And just for the Lord to prove his power, his love, and his grace, he's reconciling them both to himself, as he has always said he would do. He's doing it through this child. Jesus is not only the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the whole world. But again, I want us to focus on these Gentile wise men. There's not three. Well, I take that back. There could be three. We don't know. It just doesn't say. It could be three. could be 33. We know it's more than one. We get three because there's three gifts. And outside biblical influences like to say that they have dreams about there being three wise men. That's Catholic church tradition. It's not biblical. We just don't know. And it doesn't matter. But I do want to focus on this. What sacrifices these men made? It's an over 300-day journey, as we mentioned. You can't go online and book your motel. You don't have FaceTime. You're not making a phone call ahead. You don't have any friends. You're not even going to send mail ahead. You're going to jump on your camel with all of your stuff, and there is no guarantee you're coming back. The dangers, the perils, the costs, the risks the lost time with your loved ones, your businesses, your families, if they're professors or whatever, they're, they're going to be gone for at least a minimum of two years if everything goes well. All to chase a dream. How much do they have? We don't know. And where the Bible is silent, we must remain silent. Do they have the Old Testament scriptures? Or is it just some mentors and teachings from 500 years in the past from Daniel? They don't have the temple. They don't have the priesthood. They don't have the complete revelation of God like the nation of Israel does. They are from Babylon. They are Persians. Now, this word translated for Magi or these wise men from the east, it could be translated magicians. It could be translated just wise individuals or rich princes. Excuse me. That word is also translated from a word that means a tribe in Persia that specifically had that name. It could be all of them. It could be one of them. It doesn't really matter. What we do know is they leave everything they have, and they are seeking after the king of the Jews, following a star, and they leave it all behind. What about the nation of Israel? What about our other characters, the high priests and the scribes? They have the full counsel of God's word as revealed at that time. They have the law, the prophets, the tabernacle. They have the sacrifices. They have everything to seek after the Lord. In fact, when Herod asks, where could he be? They have the answer right away. But they are not seeking him out. They are not looking for him. And what about Herod? 
Herod doesn't even know that star's up in the sky. The wise men have been looking at it for a year off and on, apparently. And Herod's like, oh, okay, what does this mean? He's only interested in preserving himself. If you're not convicted yet, wait till you see this quote from Michael Green in his commentary. He's speaking about these chief priests when he says, Then there were the Jewish chief priests and scribes. Their attitude is almost as amazing as that of the Magi. They knew their scriptures and had no problem in answering Herod when he wanted to know where the child would be born. Back came the answer, pointing to Herod, Herod to Micah 5.2. He would be born in Bethlehem, of course. But did they go to greet him? No, not at all. They knew it all, but they did nothing. That is a characteristic danger for clergy and scholars in any age. Their apathy hardened into outright opposition to Jesus as his ministry developed and ended with frenzied lust for his blood. An awesome warning that knowledge is no substitute for obedience. That is the application for us. When did we stop becoming seekers and searchers who were willing to cast off everything to find God, to feel His presence, to understand and learn? And many times in the church today, we, we are beginning to debate the finer points of certain eschatology, certain finer points of soteriology, that's the study of salvation. And we have all these finer nuances that we begin to argue back and forth about. And we become more concerned with preserving a theological ar uh, argument than actually seeking after God. I'll give you an example. When you come to church and you're in fellowship and talking with other believers, what are you talking about? Politics? The world? Culture? Or are you talking about Jesus? What he's doing in your life? what he's doing in the lives of others, how he's changing you, how he's molding you, how you're searching him out, are you seeking him? Even worse yet, the church begins to be like the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests here who only want to defend their ivory tower. The whole world is evil and we are the good ones. And we forget that the Lord says, when you were enemies with me, I died for you. He died for us. We were them. Those are our people out there that we criticize and hold back. The Magi, how much did they know? No idea. But they forsake everything on a risk to spend a little time with the King of Kings. What do they bring? They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, very expensive, speaking about his kingship, speaking about his priesthood, and that he would die for the sins of the world. And they present it to him. But where are the Jews? They're not seeking him out. It's Gentiles that bring these gifts. And we have to say to ourselves, which one of these characters are we? We need to be like the wise men. We need to be like the wise men who seek after God and bow and wonder at his name instead of scribes who sit around kicking rock thinking that we have him and we know him when we should be sharing him and walking with him and seeking him out. 
Well, let's read now verses 13 through 18, and we'll come back to these points here in a little bit. Now, when they had departed, verse 13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until death of Herod, it, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. I think it's important for us to understand what's happening here. And it just seems to me like if you're going to have a biography about the King of Kings, why would you put so much tragedy in it and sorrow? Like, why would you put this in here? There's got to be a point to placing this here. And then we realize who Jesus is and what he's proclaiming. Jesus knows what it is to be an immigrant as a child. He knows what it is to be a political refugee, to flee for your life. Now, as an infant child, how much of this does he know and understand? I have no idea. I don't know where his divinity ends and his humanity starts. I only know that he's 100% regular human. He's also 100% God in the flesh. That's the hypostatic union. Remember that fancy name? But Jesus, as he grows up, whether he knows it or not, knows exactly what atrocities are. It's not like he's reading a Fox News article, a CNN article, say, oh, those, those people shot themselves over in that city that we don't like. Those people are so dumb. Oh, man, if they were just smart like us, these things wouldn't happen. No, as Jesus is growing up, he sees crucifixions on the side of the road. He sees evil leaders. He, he sees Romans who, if you're in their way and upset them, will beat you to death just to prove a point. He, he sees zealots knifing Romans in dark alleys. See, he doesn't live in a fantasy life. Jesus' life is full of pain and pleasure, happiness and sadness, life and love and heartache, just like all of us. And he is the king of kings the king of the Jews, the king of the world. And then we understand more what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you understand what this means? That Jesus, when we look at him, he is the answer of all of the deepest philosophical questions. Why does God allow this? Why did this happen? Why is this tragedy going on? God, why do you allow these terrible things to happen? And our God didn't allow these things to be inflicted upon us. He came, descended from heaven, and experienced them with us. Now, there's a lot of debate about these chapters. Did Herod really kill these kids? That's terrible. How could that happen? No, Herod killed half of the Sanhedrin in his time. He executed 300 court officers. This is all recorded in history. He executed his wife, Marion, 
her mother, Alexandra, his sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater, killed them all. And he killed the former high priest's entire family so that they wouldn't be in political opposition. Now, killing the kids of Bethlehem, two years old, male kids, two years old, and other, that's nothing for him. That's just the work before lunch break. So, yes, yes, Herod killed these children. There's more criticism about Jesus. Uh, the Jews, after Jesus' death and resurrection to fight Christians, would begin to proclaim that when Jesus went to Egypt, he became a sorcerer and learned the miracles were magic. And the reason I bring that up to you now is because you're beginning to see people start to say nonsense like this. They're digging it out of history. And they'll say, oh, here's a 2,000-year-old manuscript that says this is how Jesus did his miracles. He's not really God. These are, this is old news. This is like taking the tabloids from today and using them as historical texts in the future. It's not just not possible. I find it fascinating. There's just as much scholarly attacks against the Bible saying he never went to Egypt and that it's just an allegory. Oh, it's like, pick your poison, please. Nonsense. As Christians, though, when we look at Jesus's life, we learn how to live our life. Like, what kind of God would kill all those kids? You let Jesus live and make it to Egypt And yet all those parents are crying and weeping over their lost children. That that is terrible. What kind of God would do that? Until you realize who Jesus is. See, as Jesus died on the cross and gave up his spirit and he rose again from the flesh, I personally believe, with 100% certainty, I can say this, that the children of every believer from the moment of conception until the age of accountability. If they die, they enter into the presence of the Lord. Jesus redeemed every single one of those children, and they entered instantaneously into paradise. After the resurrection, he brought them up into heaven. I personally believe, this is where you're going to get get sketchy without certainty, that through Jesus Christ, every child before the age of accountability across the planet is redeemed by his grace. What does that mean? The, The Catholic Church likes to stamp an age on what the age of accountability is. Only God knows what that age is. I believe some people may never reach the age of accountability. There are some people that don't uh, mature to have the mental faculties, for example, to be able to make that decision. I believe that Jesus has redeemed them by his grace. There are some young kids that are so smart, they better get saved quick. (laughs) But that's between them and the Lord. That Jesus made a way. And here you have this this notable prophecy that Jeremiah talks about, and it's speaking about Rachel in Genesis chapter 48. You see, in Genesis chapter 48, Rachel's giving birth to Benjamin, and she dies in childbirth. It's in Genesis 48, 7. It says, But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. That's an important place, as you can tell from this chapter. What do you tell a man who's lost his wife in childbirth about God and love and purpose? You don't have a scribe there debating the final points of soteriology. I'll tell you that much. I will tell you this, that through faith alone and Christ alone, through his work on the cross, it is finished. 
and that she, because she gave her trust and life to Jesus, is in paradise, and you will see her again, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's who Jesus is, who lived a life full of tragedy and promise and love and faith and difficulty, just like we do, and he made a way of salvation. And he's redeemed us by his blood. He descended to us. If you missed the first chapter, I highly recommend you go back, you listen to it, and, or you watch it online, because it's going to be very important for the next few chapters as we continue through. But through tragedy, through trials, through blessings, we must be like the wise men seeking after the Lord. We're not promised anything. Who said that you were going to live a long life? Does he owe it to you? Who said you wouldn't get sick or hurt? Who said that these people wouldn't get blessings? I see people getting material blessings all the time. I'm like, Lord, for real? We live in a sin-cursed and broken world, and Jesus entered into it, and he lived it just like we, all tempted as we are, yet he was without sin and perfect, and in everything he does, he shows us that he is the Savior of the world. And so now in verses 19 through 23... It says that when, now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So as evil as Herod is, and his ability to kill, to maintain his power, his wealth, and his prestige, what happens to him? He died. He died. We can be like that. We do everything we can. We don't seek after the Lord. We claw our way to success. But what does the Bible say in Hebrews 9.27? It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? To have nothing. So who was wise? Was it Herod? I mean, if you're looking at it from the world, he was rich, he was powerful, he was influential, people feared him. He built incredible buildings. No, he's not wise. Was it the scribes and the priests? I mean, they were scholastic. They knew the Bible. They were in church services all the time. They were very spiritual people. You looked at them and you said, wow, those are the righteous ones. Those are the good ones. No, no. The wise men are the wise ones because they forsook everything to follow after him. Are you? Are you, are you coming to church and being a good churchian, or are you seeking after God? Because Jesus himself told us, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. We know the heavens declare his handiworks, we, the star. We walk by faith and not by sight. He is the Word. We can seek Him out in the Word through prayer. He tells us to pray without ceasing. And I'll tell you a side note. I'm talking about our desire to seek after God. I started exercising more recently. Started running. 
And when you run in this climate, it saps the life out of you. And I drink like a gallon of water and a Gatorade and some of the, you know, the electrolyte powders. And I just, I feel like I'm empty forever. Just can't fill it up. And you're like, what is going on? But the Bible tells us that that feeling, that thirst, and that's all you can think about is how do I get something to drink? How do I not feel this way? I have to change this. That is supposed to be how we feel in our desire to seek after God. In Psalm 63, 1, it says, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. You could just change that to low country right there. Just dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Are you thirsting for the Lord? Are you forsaking everything to find Him? Do you even know to search? It is a dangerous place when you think you already have Him, when you've already figured it out, where you're attaining the finer points. We have to be wise, to be seekers, to be forever thirsty for more of Him. So as you leave here, I pray that you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness and you decide to be wise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for who you are. Even as a babe, you are showing us in every move your grace, the works of your hands, your love for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And we praise you as the King of kings and Lord of lords and ask us that you would fill us with this desire to know you more and ask you to fill us with your spirit. You told us, Lord, that we who drink of you never thirst again. We pray for more of that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a non-believer, come on up. We will pray with you, talk with you, have some gifts for you. If you need prayer about anything, we have brothers and sisters up here to pray with you. God bless you and have a wonderful week.